Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, Dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. So let's get right into it. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Dream Bigger podcast. If you're new here, I'm your host, Sif, and I am so excited that you've tuned in. And let me tell you, you have tuned into a good one. So today's guest is Dr. Stephanie Estima, who is one of my wellness kind of idols. I have looked up to her for a very long time. I read her book, The Betty Body, and it was just phenomenal. I listened to her podcast and I love her because she is a woman in the wellness field who is talking about quote unquote biohacking and all of the things we read about, like all these like wellness and health hacks that a lot of people, including myself, are really interested in. But she talks about how to apply it to female physiology. So today's episode, we talk a lot about our menstrual cycle and, you know, the four phases in our cycle, which a lot of people don't even know about, which is just so crazy because we've lived all our lives with our period. And yet we know so little about it. And, you know, it's seen as this burden. So, you know, we talk a lot about that, how to kind of optimize your life according to your cycle, which is something that I'm really passionate about. You know, these methodologies have really helped me feel the best version of myself. And I'm I'm hoping that whoever listens to this can kind of give this whole method a go and you'll see like you'll have never felt better. So we do all of that. We debunk a lot of myths around what we've been taught as women about health and wellness. So I'm really excited about this episode. I know you guys will love Dr. Stephanie Estima. She's just a wealth of knowledge. Before we get into the interview, this week's hot tip, her book, The Betty Body. And I know that for the last few episodes, my hot tip has had to do with the episode. But honestly speaking, like I'm really passionate and I take my 
hot tips extremely seriously. And I would not be recommending these things if I didn't truly believe in them. I'm just really lucky to be able to get guests whose work has kind of had such a large impact on my life. So Dr. Stephanie's book, The Betty Body is absolutely incredible. It gives you everything you need to know about your cycle, about how you should be eating, about how to optimize your workouts, sleep, like you name it, it's in there. And it really is like a Bible for me. So yeah, I hope you guys love the episode and check out her book. It is my hot tip after all. And the last thing is a review. I want to read it out. It comes from C Dagger and it says, Sif does an amazing job at getting great guests and asking great questions for amazing podcast interviews, quickly becoming one of my favorites. Thank you so much for leaving that review. And guys, don't forget, I am still doing the giveaway with a $500 beauty goodie bag. So if you hadn't tuned in last week, basically I'm doing a giveaway where I'm giving away two $500 beauty packages. So these two packages contain everything from, you know, beauty products like makeup to skincare to perfume, hair products, you name it, it's in there. You know, I want to thank you guys for being a part of my community and show my gratitude that way. So if you want to enter please go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. And once you do go to my Instagram page, hit follow and just let me know, like comment on my latest pick and let me know that you left a review and what you love about the podcast. Once you do that, I'm going to select a winner and I will ship you guys your big box of beauty goodies. I'm excited and I'm excited for this episode. So let's dive right in. Okay. So Stephanie, first and foremost, what was your big dream when you were growing up? Oh my goodness. What a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say I always thought that I wanted to help people. So I started off actually one of the ways that I paid for schooling, I was a fitness instructor. So, you know, the big tuition that I had to pay, you know, going through uh, chiropractic school was mainly paid for by my ability to teach a step class. <laughs> and, uh, and for those of you that are old enough to know what step is, I always knew that I wanted to help people. I started, gosh, when I was little, well, I can say my earliest memory, I was in grade one and mm-hmm. the teacher said, you know, draw what it is that you want to um, be. And I drew being in a spaceship and becoming an aeronautical engineer. That was the thing I wanted to do. And my teacher was like, what's that? And I was like, I don't know, but I just want to go to space. Like I want to be like, fix the spaceships. And, you know, as I you know, got a little bit older, I thought helping people was really exciting to me. Thought I might do medicine, volunteered at a couple hospitals. Uh, was the saddest place on earth. And really, I felt after those volunteer sessions, I was always kind of down, a little sad, maybe. And maybe that's just me being a bit of an empath and sort of picking up some of the energy there. Mm-hmm. But I, I landed on chiropractic because it was the best solution as a primary healthcare provider that I could discern at the time. So we were really looking at maybe some more low-tech options, right? Like nutrition and Mm -hmm. body movement and rehabilitation, prehabilitation, stress management. But those seem to be the things that move the needle the most for people rather than giving someone a medication and then managing those symptoms over time, uh, which was sort of the, and of course I'm making generalizations about the medical, um, you know, about medicine, but that seems to be the modus operandi with medicine. It's like you come in for a problem, you leave with a paper with a script on it, and then we manage your symptoms indefinitely. So chiropractic was the 
in some ways low tech, but most sophisticated option because it was really getting to the root of things. And then in chiropractic practice, I spent 16 years in private practice uh, before I closed my brick and mortar practice and moved more online. But I started noticing differences between the outcomes of men and women. So my men, I would say, you know what, you can't do, you should be able to do 40 pushups, you know, on your toes and they would just kind of go away. And then, you know, the next month we'd have a reeval and they were able to do it. And my women were struggling. So I started actually in practice changing the way that I was caring for a female patient uh, in-house Uh, And we started even talking about like where she was in her menstrual cycle would kind of dictate the type of therapy that she might get that day. And so that was sort Mm -hmm. of the, maybe that's like, you know, if it's an origin story, if you might want to call it that in terms of how I came to really be obsessed, uh, still obsessed with female physiology and the application of still kind of low tech tools, but nutrition and movement and fitness and exercise physiology, supplementation, stress uh, Mm -hmm. reduction for women as it relates to women, because we are not little men. (laughs) Yes. And that kind of brings me to my next question, which is really about this concept of women's bodies. I guess like we've been taught that we're supposed to work like little men. Mm -hmm. And I love that you address this in all of your work because I feel like it's so resonated with me because I feel like there's a lot of myths out there for women and, you know, all kinds of things. Like we're, we're supposed to work out the same way for the entirety of our life. We're supposed to eat a certain way, eat less, exercise more. There's a lot of these myths out there. And so can you explain how you kind of came to this realization that there was this concept that like women were supposed to operate like little men and how you are, I guess, working to debunk those myths? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we are all taught that. I think when we are women growing up, we see people being praised for Uh, accolades for success, for degrees, for letters behind your name, for houses, for cars, for all of these things. And we really are taught, I think as a society, this is true for men and women uh, and, you know, everything in between, that productivity is a measure of your worth. So how much you're Mm -hmm. able to get done in a day, how quickly you're able to you know, hustle is one of my least favorite words in the English language is this idea of hustling Mm -hmm. where we are taught to really work until we, you know, until we are so burnt out, but, you know, we, we've worked hard and we've, you know, we're living the, you know, whatever fantasy dream of, you know, hustling and working and moving up the ladder and all of this. And I think that there's a certain, you know, for many women, myself included, you just sort of come to this rock bottom where you're like, is this what my life is supposed? Am I supposed to work until I'm so exhausted that I, all I can do is lie on the couch for two days? Like, is that Mm -hmm. my existence? That's my contribution as a human being. There's a couple of different things sort of happened at the same time for me. So I was in practice, as I mentioned, I had a clinic fire. There was a fire in my clinic actually burned down. Oh my God. So, uh, electrical fire, you know, couldn't have been avoided. And then I had to take, so this existing practice that I had, that I had built up, put a lot of energy and love and, you know, time and and effort into, I had to find sort of a temporary location to continue seeing these patients that were on the care plan. And then I also had to find a new space and build it out and put the rehab center in and all the things that I was doing. So there was that 
At the same time, I was going through, I had decided to end my marriage. I had small children, lots of lots of stress. You had a lot going on. It was on. a lot yeah. going on. And I, I will say very good friends with my children's father now, but holy moly at the time, I don't care how awake you are. Um, it, you know, divorce is hard, especially when you throw in kids into the mix and then I'm trying to rebuild this clinic on the side. So I was spent, like emotionally spent, uh, spiritually spent, physically exhausted because I was working, you know, trying to, you know, do the patient, like do the patient thing during the day. And then as soon as patients finished, you know, all their paperwork, and then I had to go, you know, scout places. When I found the place, it was like going in there and keeping an eye on construction and, you know, all, all this stuff. So I came to this low point where I was so tired. In the summertime, I decided to take some time off, wanted to take my kids to Europe. So we went to Italy for a couple of weeks on the trip, I realized how freaking tired I was, like how utterly exhausted and spent I was. No kidding. Yeah. Did a lot of sleeping. Also, you know, rested on the beach. You know, the kids were, you know, playing paddleboard and stuff in the water and, you know, all the waves and stuff. And then I would sleep on the beach. We'd hang out. We'd go for, you know, we'd walk to our breakfast spot. I'd get my morning cappuccino. We'd walk to lunch. We'd walk from lunch. We'd walk to our dinner spot, walk after dinner, we'd go to the little square where all the you know action was in the little Italian towns that we were in. And I, I got my period actually at towards the end of that trip. So we were there for about three weeks. At you know the last uh, week or so, I I got my period. And normally that would have been the end of the you know my enjoyment, right? I had struggled, and I talk about this in my book, The Betty Body. Yes, I had yeah. I had struggled with my period for decades, truly. But it really wasn't until I was in Italy and I was shocked that I actually didn't bleed through all of my pants. There wasn't a lot of cramping. Uh, it actually kind of came and went, like kind of did its thing. I was still able to participate. I wasn't like medicating myself with Advil or Motrin or whatever it was at the time. I was like, wow, this is like, I feel like a goddess. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like this is how it feels to menstruate like a woman. After that trip, we came back home. And one of the things that I started uh, wanting to kind of put together was what were some of the internal and external variables that had mm -hmm. worked for me in that three-week period, in that three-week timeframe? I'm Lexi. I'm Shannon. I'm Tiffany. And this is the Six and Nine podcast. Family dinners at six and pre-drinks are at nine. We're serving laughs, cocktails, and lots of stories we probably shouldn't share. In this multi-generational mother-daughter podcast, nothing is off the table. We're unfiltered, uncensored, and undone. You can catch a new episode of Six and Nine every Tuesday, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you are invited. Is a quick turnaround to have a great period in three weeks. Like, what happened? Yeah, it's something that most women can't even imagine if they're used to periods going a certain way. Right, exactly. Especially if you've suffered from PMS. And, you know, I, I talk about in the book, Ugh. you know, my breasts, like it was really difficult to put a t-shirt on kind of a week before my period. They were so tender and inflamed and angry. I felt bloated and distended. And then when my period did come, it was like extremely heavy. Um, like I had to always, like clinic days, I always had to bring like two pairs of pants because 100% I was going through one, maybe two, depending on how bad it was. So uh, I started kind of piecing together 
some of the things that really worked. So a lot of natural mm-hmm. sunlight, a lot of low level movement. So walking to and from your restaurant, walking you know, in the evening after dinner, getting lots of sleep. Again, relatively low tech, but in the hustle and bustle of life in the city and with all the stressors that I was dealing with, I had forgotten all of those things. All of those things had gone by the wayside. And so I started implementing those things back in my life again. And my, I was already running a nutrition program in the clinic. And I was already, like even prior to Italy, already starting to see men and women getting different results. It was a ketogenic style nutrition program. Men were like dropping weight, like no one's business. They're like, this is the best thing. I love 20 pounds in a week. Like doc, it's the best. And my women were like, I hate this. Like I've had yeah. no carbs. I can't and- sleep. Yeah. yeah. And then when you're doing it with a partner, like that's the story I hear that like your partner is losing all this weight and things seem so easy. And then the woman is like, well, what am I doing wrong? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and that's what, that's what we do as women, isn't it? We were like, God, what's wrong with me? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's the diet that's not meant for you. You know, I looked up to, you know, when I, even in that early stage of running this ketogenic program, I was still running it like all the other guys were right. I was running it like my heroes who are still, you know, like Mark Sisson and Dominic D'Agostino and like all these sort of, we'll call them like kings of keto, right? I was like, the guys were doing really great and my women were not. So I was like, okay, what's the difference here? So I started playing around with, uh, so I'm always eternally grateful to these women that were, I was like, can you just, can we just try something for the next month? Like, just trust me. I just want to understand where you are in your cycle. And then we're just going to play a little bit with your protein. We're going to play a little bit with your calories when, you know, at certain times of your cycle. And that was really the birth of my body of work around keto for women, keto cycling for women. Even if you've tried keto in the past, I promise you, you probably haven't done it this way if you're a female. It, there was all these sort of different things at the same yeah. time that that kind of collaborated and, and sort of like smacked me in the head. And I was like, oh yeah, we're not little men. We have to do things a little differently. We have to get low level exercise, like one of the things I'd love to talk about is so often, you know, we all want to get our exercise in, right? So we have this like one hour, we do our spin, we do our Peloton, we do our whatever, and then we sit for the rest of the day. And I would actually much rather you skip that hour, but then you are walking, you know, every, every hour or so you're going for a 10 minute walk. So over the course of eight hours in your workday, you get 80 minutes of walking in. Yeah. Yeah, I know you talk about movement snacks and I think it's actually really fun and so easy that like, you know, you do these like little bursts of like just light movement to get the blood flowing and it really does put you in a better mood also, I feel like. A hundred percent. So often when you're sitting and this is, I often notice this, it's usually like between one and 3 p.m. I have 400 tabs up on my my computer. Yeah, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And I'm just like aimlessly going through each one and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not even thinking it. I'm not even focused. So it's like back away from the computer, you know, and I'll go out for a movement snack. That's, you know, instead of going to the fridge for a food snack, I'll go for a little movement snack, 10 minutes of walking. You know, I'll do kind of a lap around my, you know, my neighborhood. I'm homeschooling my kids. I'll take my kids to the park for a little bit. And that, as you said, it's a really 
natural way to boost your mood because now you're getting your blood flowing. It's been stagnant as you've been sitting in front of the computer. You're activating areas in the brain that are involved in mood. So we're activating the frontal lobe, particularly the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in happiness. It helps to quell anxiety and depression. It sort of inhibits some of these lower centers of the brain Mm -hmm. that can you know, when we're sort of spiraling and we're like, God, the world's coming to an end and everything's going wrong. You know, this is, this is kind of lower brain center activity where we are inherently designed to look for threats. But if you can get out of that temporarily and into these higher brain, this like neocortex, this, this mm-hmm. newer area in terms of development in the brain, then you can absolutely change your mood. You can, you can start to get into abundance and gratitude. Yes. Yes. I couldn't agree more. So I want to rewind a little bit and actually get into the nitty gritty of the cycle before we even touch on the keto and the the kinds sure. of workouts, because that's stuff that I want to ask about because everyone needs to know, like I, I told you offline, I'm obsessed with your book, mm. but a lot of people don't even know what their cycle comprises of. Like we just know that we have our period and then there's a thing called ovulation, but nothing else. So for someone who is completely new and it's kind of sad because we are women, this is our bodies and yet we have such little education around it, right? So if you could go through the four cycles or like four phases of our cycle, that would be awesome. I would love to do that. And you're right. We all focus on our period. I always call our period like the popular girl, right? It's like, she's the one that gets all the (laughs) attention, right? It's like, I'm on my period now. And like the color, it's this color and it's heavy and it's not, you know. So the way that I break it down is into four weeks. I say four weeks because it's just easy to divide you know, seven days by four, you know, 28 days in total. However, the cycle length, the entire cycle doesn't need to be 28 days. If your cycle is 29 days or 28 days or 26 days, you're not menstruating wrong. There's a, there's a normal variance in, in, and you'll find yourself like month to month, you might have a little bit of a, an alteration there. So we're going to talk about it as if it's 28 days, but just know that it can be 26 up to like 33 or 34 days. That's still considered completely normal. So first week is your bleed week. This is the popular girl. This is your period. We all know it's happening. When we think about this from a hormonal perspective, uh, what's happening is of course the endometrial lining is shedding. So we are getting rid of an organ. We are bleeding out uh, somewhere between 40 milliliters up to you know maybe 60 milliliters of blood over the course of the week. And just to give you a bit of context, like if you're wearing a pad, for example, most pads can hold up to about five milliliters of blood. And, you know, most people will change it sort of before it's like completely full as well. So 40 to 60 milliliters over the course of a week. And what we're looking at from my hormonal perspective is most of your hormones are actually quite low here. So there's almost like a relief, you know, and we'll talk about the luteal phase and like right before your period, how we can, when we get to week three and week four, how that can be a bit more pro-inflammatory, but there's almost like a bit of a release because it's or a relief and a release really, because you're releasing the endometrial lining and your estrogen levels are relatively low. Progesterone's not around, testosterone's low. Luteinizing hormone should also be low as well. That's the hormone that we'll talk about in week two. 
The one that's still around uh, and should be higher is something called FSH, which is follicular stimulating hormone. It does kind of what the name suggests. It stimulates the follicles. And what happens every month is FSH is going to stimulate a bunch of follicles. There's going to be one main one that is going to uh, be the one that is developed and eventually release the egg into week two. So FSH is high. Everything else is kind of low. Very normal to in the first day or two of your period to feel a little crampy, to feel a little sluggish, maybe a little lethargic. You are getting rid of an organ. So maybe we want to give ourselves a bit of a break here and you know, just do the things that make you feel good. It might be uh, a hot shower. It might be you know, gentle stretches. I like to walk a lot. Actually, the first couple of days of my period, I wear, um, my aura ring's actually charging right now, but um, you know, on, when I'm wearing it, the uh, first couple of days, I like to get in like 12,000, 15,000 steps. I feel like just that really nice rocking motion that happens when you're walking is very therapeutic for the sacrum and just the womb space in general. So that's kind of week one. Towards the end of week one, we actually see estrogen beginning to rise. And that's because those follicles are developing. We're starting to see estrogen being released from them. There will be one main one that will continue to develop. And then into week two, this is your pre-ovulatory week. So right before ovulation, estrogen now is really making a big play. So estrogen is an anabolic hormone. It's a trophic hormone. It's a, another word for trophic would be growth. So it is going to plump up your cheeks. It's going to whiten your eyes. Your lips are going to be fuller. Your face is more symmetrical. It also, of course, has influence on our breasts. On It, it, it helps develop our secondary sex characteristics like our breasts and our hips. So you'll see estrogen rise uh, and it's actually the highest rise that it will have all, all through the cycle. So the full 28 or 29 days or whatever. So we'll see it kind of go from almost nothing in week one to this like monstrous like apical rise. And the reason for that is of course that follicle. We are going all in to develop this follicle. And so under the influence of estrogen, we will start to see one follicle is chosen and it will continue to develop. The other thing that we see in this week is testosterone rise. Pre-ovulation, this is like mother nature being a smart wily minx, she is going to increase your libido. Testosterone most famously, I mean, it does many things in the body, but most famously is involved in our interest in sex. So we are much more receptive to having sex. And when I say sex, of course, I'm, I'm being a bit heteronormative, but I'll talk about this in the context of like a male and female relationship. She is going to be more interested in penetrative sex. Of course, that you know, if you are not in a heterosexual relationship, that still is true for you. Your testosterone levels are going to make you just more sexually interested in sex. Mm-hmm. Testosterone does lots of different things as well. Bone mass, muscle mass, but those are kind of the big, uh, from a reproductive health perspective, you will notice yeah. your libido is going to um, is going to be um, higher this week. You're, you should, it's a crude measurement. Of course, you can always test, but a crude measurement is like, are you hornier? <laughs> you know, like, are you more interested in having sex with your partner or with yourself if it's you're not with a partner? So, it's <laughs> so true, by the way. Like when, when I started tracking, I was like, holy shit, like this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because she, like, this is why mother nature, she is this, you know, if I designed this, I would have failed miserably. This is why we leave this up to, you know, uh, evolution because 
if you have sex in the days leading up to ovulation, which is kind of what we're building up to, and there is ejaculate, you know, in the in the womb space, your chance of getting pregnant is going to go up because sperm can live for like five to six days. Like they pack a picnic, they can like they're just hanging out, like they're they're gonna hang out there until they see until this the egg is released. And that's just a caution, you know, if you if you are someone who does not want to get pregnant, your Maybe biology be careful that week. Yeah, it be like there are other things you can play with with your partner or with yourself, right? Like there's other things that you might explore because this is mother nature working to fertilize your egg. So if you want to get pregnant, of course, like, you know, make like a rabbit. And if you don't, then this might be the time to, you know, explore other things with your partner. And then of course we have the main event of your cycle, which is ovulation. There's actually not enough enough attention paid to ovulation because it's not as obvious as your period. But this is where we will see um, luteinizing hormone. There'll be, it kind of goes from like nothing to everything within like a 10 hour period. Uh, And then so luteinizing hormones job is to help the follicle release the egg. And that is ovulation. That is the the release of the egg from the follicle is the main point of your cycle, actually. This is um, a measure of your fertility. It's also a measure of your vitality as well. So we want to be making sure that we're ovulating. Some people can feel it. I can feel it. Like I know which ovaries because ov- I feel like a little kind of, it's kind of like a pop. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but wow. I feel I feel it. I also knew when I was, the moment I got pregnant, I was like, yep, I just had this sort of moment of conscious you know, conception. But I just have a lot of, you know, maybe internal. You're, you're very like in tune with your body, though, and yeah. I mean that's what I strive to be. So you know, goals. If you can't feel which ovaries, again, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. You know, yeah. Um, so we are releasing the egg, and then the egg is going to uh, sort of call to it. It will sort of send out a signal that she's ready, and then if there's sperm in the area, they will go, and then she actually chews. We often think that it's like the sperm are like vying for, and they're fighting each other to get into the egg. No, no, she. She, she chooses the one she wants. It's a little different than what we've been told. We're all told that like all the sperm are fighting for the, each other and like it's the one that gets in first. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. The, the egg chooses the sperm that she wants. And then once that sperm is inside, she kind of will look at the sperm. If there's repair that needs to happen, she has the repair. And then they kind of together will move down uh, the fallopian tube and move into the uterus for implantation. So we have ovulation and then the entire hormonal landscape changes, right? So now we'll assume that the egg is just kind of hanging out. They're still waiting to be fertilized. The follicle that released the egg, now uh, we refer to it as the corpus luteum. Mm -hmm. And the corpus luteum will start secreting progesterone. And this is actually one of the ways that we know that you've ovulated. If you are someone who's tracking her basal body temperature, you'll Mm -hmm. notice that there's going to be a spike after you ovulate progesterone is very warming. Uh, So you are going to see your body temperature rise after you've ovulated. And this is just a little like pro tip for my ladies who are trying to get pregnant. If you wait until your basal body temperature rises, ovulation has already happened. So you want to have lots and lots of sex in week two before you ovulate because those sperm can last for like five or six days. So that when the egg is released, that um, there's lots and lots of sperm there because the egg will only live depending on the woman's age and, you know, health of the egg and all this, it'll live for, you know, four hours to like 24. 
So you have a mere hour, hours to get pregnant, which again flies in the face of what we've all been told. Like you, like I was told, you know, I was taught, I, you know, I'm not throwing shade to the Catholic um, school system, but I, you know, went to Catholic school and I was taught that, or I had this belief that if I got into a swimming pool, like I could get pregnant, like at any time, right? Um, we only have a couple, of, we have up to a maximum of a day where mm-hmm. we are fertile. So that's also just something to keep in your noggin. So we're now we're in the luteal phase. So we have progesterone uh, that's being secreted from the corpus luteum. Estrogen, I was talking last, you know, in week two, it has this big astronomical rise and then, Spike, it, yeah. it, and then it falls and then it will come back up again. Uh, so it almost looks in the beginning of week three, almost like week one, because we have like almost no estrogen and then she comes back up. Once she comes back up, that second rise, it's not as high as the first and it will sort of be sustained until the body recognizes that there's no fertilized egg and we have to kind of scrap this and start again. Progesterone um, reaches its peak at the end of week three, beginning of week four, like day, you know, call it 19 to 22 for Mm -hmm. most women. And then it will also start to decline as well. And as we move into week four, this week right before the period, this is where a lot of women will start to experience a lot of symptoms. They will start to like the angry, tender breast, the, the, the bloating and the distension. Uh, they might feel hot because progesterone is warming them up. So they might have trouble sleeping at night. Um, so you'll often hear a lot of these premenstrual syndrome uh, type of uh, symptoms in that, um, in that fourth week. And then that's often why the period is such a relief, right? Because we have this drop in like your body's like, okay, there's no fertilized egg here, no more progesterone, no more estrogen. We got to like get rid of this and we got to start fresh again next month. So that in a nutshell is your menstrual cycle. It's so crazy like how the female body works. Like this is like, I mean, when you hear the details, it's really something, right? And I feel like we need to learn to respect and almost be in awe of the whole process. Like that's fascinating. Oh, we have to have reverence for our bodies. I grew up at a time where, you know, getting your period was like the most shameful. Like you just, no one could know that you were on your period. Like if anyone knew in high school is like the worst thing ever. And I think when we begin to have such an honor and an appreciation for what your body is doing every single day of the month. You are different hormonally every single day, every single week. I think having reverence um, and honoring our physiology, I think becomes part of our duty as women. And in a way, it also kind of throws some shade at the patriarchy because we're sort of taught to hate ourselves. We're sort of taught that you have to hate yourself. Like if you, you're only going to love yourself when you look this way or when you have this bag or when you have, like we're taught to really reject ourselves uh, or that the only thing that matters is our looks. And I think that when you kind of say, okay, like it doesn't matter that I'm not a size two, like I'll tell, I'm Portuguese and Lebanese, like these hips, like my thighs are always going to touch. Like that's just what my thighs, my hips are like, I got a booty, I got hips, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. uh, like I'm curvy and maybe we're getting a little off topic here, but I would say that society often pushes this idea that we should be as small as possible and shrink as possible and eat as little as possible and take mm-hmm. up as little space as possible. And I don't subscribe to that. So I think we need to honor the, the magic, the geeky magic that is our body. It's true. It really is. And 
I think it's so interesting that considering everything that's happening in our bodies, we're still told to eat the same way throughout like everything. And so this brings me to my next question, which is about eating. And I know that you kind of advise people how to eat throughout their cycle. So could you get into like the whole idea of keto cycling a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I have a program called the Estima Diet. Uh, also really looking if anyone has any more interesting names because I just named it after myself. So <laughs> the marketing is just like the Estima Diet, but it's done you know, by a woman for women. And it's two phases of keto. So the first phase is actually inducing metabolic flexibility. So it is a 70% fat, 20% protein, 10% carbohydrate, uh, ketogenic macronutrient formulation. So we help you figure out your calories and then we we help you figure out your macronutrients. And if I can just for a moment talk about calories, I think we also have to kick the 1200 calorie diet. I was going to ask you about the this. Butt. So, I, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 1200 calories is not... A, if you are 5'2", 95 years old and 45% body fat, it might be appropriate for you at that point. But like for most women who, I mean, of course, age and height play into account into your, into your calories. Um, but so many women, we've just been living on this 1200 calorie um, diet and it's, it's only appropriate in that situation. Maybe the other situation that might be appropriate is if you're dieting down for a show, like I've done figure competitions and you know, the, the, the weeks before my figure comp, yes, I was having like, it was something like 1200 calories. I was miserable. I couldn't sleep, yeah. but 1200 calories. live in that misery. That's the thing. They live Correct. in that misery indefinitely. And that's, that's what's like, fucked up, you know? It, totally. And I, you know, this is where I, you know, in my membership program, we actually teach women how to heal their metabolism through something called reverse dieting, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, if you've been doing 1200 calories for decades and you are so scared out of your mind to have more calories, we slowly uh, and strategically help you increase your calories without gaining, without gaining fat, minimizing uh, weight gain. So we're increasing your total movement, which is specific movement, like the weight training, but also general movement, like the walking and stuff like that, uh, as well as allow, like feeding your body more. And that's that whole thing of like shrinking, like how little can I eat? You know, it's 1200, like I don't think many, most people should be on a 1200 calorie diet. But back to your thing about keto cycling. So we have sort of phase one metabolic flexibility where we are, we're restricting carbohydrates for about a month, about a cycle. Um, And then depending on, you know, we have quizzes and sort of subjective and objective measures that will help you determine whether you need to repeat that or you can move on to the cycling piece. That's sort of phase two of the Estima diet where Mm -hmm. now we are starting to change your macros uh, and your calories based on where you are in your menstrual cycle. So long-term keto for women, like long-term carbohydrate restriction doesn't work. Uh, We see particularly with the thyroid gland, which is such an important piece for metabolism, uh, such an important piece for you know mood. And like I mentioned, metabolism, getting energy from the blood into the cells. If your thyroid kind of goes kaput, which we've seen, I've seen it happen when you've had mm-hmm. women on keto for years and, and years. Eternity. And yeah. uh, eternity, they're also fasting too aggressively. They're doing too much mm-hmm. cardio. Um, it can really affect the thyroid. So I like more carbohydrates. We actually need insulin in order to convert the inactive form of thyroid hormone T4 into the active form of 
thyroid, which is T3. We also need to have really good liver function and gut function because a lot of the conversion happens in, in those places. But we need to eat, like increase and decrease your carbs, right? So I like to like one week we do kind of classic 70, 20, 10. And then week two, where you're sort of pre-ovulatory, you have lots of energy, lots of testosterone. I actually like a lot of protein here. So I bring your protein from like a 20% you know, macro like total of your calories up to like 40%. And this seems to help with you know, feeling full. It helps with thyroid function, helps with sleep, helps with all of these things that we see women complain of when they've been on keto for too long, like that super restricted uh, carb for too long. And so we'll kind of cycle through one week on, one week off where we have keto for one week, and then we have high protein, high carb, higher carbohydrates uh, in those alternating weeks. Because the other thing that I've noticed clinically is when you restrict carbohydrates for too long, paradoxically, like you would think that this wouldn't happen, but it does, is we actually become insulin insensitive. So when you don't ever have carbohydrates, your body's like, well, I'm not producing any insulin. Like guess this hormone isn't really needed. And then your cells actually don't become as sensitive to it as they should. So strategically bumping up your carbohydrates every other week will help to sensitize your cells to insulin so that you can remain insulin sensitive. And this is again, another sort of metabolic parameter when we're trying to heal metabolism and change our body composition. We need glucose. We need insulin. It's an important hormone. It wouldn't uh, you know, I used to think like insulin is the worst, you know, IGF-1 is the worst, you know, but these are, these are things that, you know, our body produces because there's, there's, a, there's a need for it. So there's definitely a need for it. Yeah. Yeah. You also talk about upping your calories a little bit on yeah. week four of the cycle. And because there's this fear around like, okay, like I'm going to eat a little bit more. Can you explain why that's important and why our bodies actually need it? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I forgot to mention that. So thank you for um, coming circling back to that. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, you're creating an organ. Like I, I want my women to understand you are creating a new organ every month. Okay. So you need energy for that. Energy comes from internal sources and external sources. You are naturally going to be hungrier in week for. And if you try to push up against your hormones and say, no, nope, I have the willpower. I'm going to make sure that I don't have any extra food. It's very likely that you're going to end up cleaning out the pantry as I used to do. I used to try and white knuckle my way through, uh, through that week. And I would end up like binging on all the cookies, the chips, the crackers, the pizza, the bagels or whatever, any carb in sight. So I like to preempt that by increasing your calories somewhere, you know, depending on the person, depending on the age, the lean muscle mass, somewhere between 10 and 20%. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important just from a physiological perspective, because you're actually, if I were to, for example, if I were to look at your blood work um, the, in, in your fourth week, comparing it to week one, two, and three, I would see less glucose. I would see less amino acids. I would see less fatty acids, less vitamin D, less glutathione, less zinc, less selenium. Everything is being thrown into your endometrium. Like your body is, your body is wired, whether you want to have babies or not, your body is wired for reproduction. So your body is going to take these minerals, macronutrients and micronutrients, and it is going to throw them into your endometrium. So you yourself are going to be slightly depleted. So you need to have more food. That's one thing. And then the other is more psychological in that 
I think it's important for there to be diet breaks. And what I mean by a diet break is that you are increasing your calorie. You've been doing so well for three weeks. I'm not saying go clear out Haagen-Dazs and I'm not saying to go clear out like, (laughs) you know, the frozen section at your grocer. But what I'm saying is eat more of, eat more of the foods that make you feel good. Eat more vegetables, eat more protein, have some more fat. Because I think psychologically, if you're always on a diet, uh, if you're always trying to like hit a certain number, I think it does damage to us. I think it's, it's I mean, we can sort of see the psychological damage uh, that we see where women are petrified to have more than 1,200 calories a day. And I think a diet break is useful. And maybe, you know, maybe you do put on like a pound or two, but you know that that's all water weight. If you're having more carbohydrates, one molecule of CHO of carbohydrates is stored with three to four molecules of water. You know that the next week it's coming off, but just give yourself the stuff that you need. You know, give yourself the nourishment, the sustenance that your body requires. And this is, you know, again, kind of back to what we were talking about a way that you can, you know, honor your female physiology and not try to be like a guy. Cause a guy doesn't have this site. Like they have a testosterone cycle, which is kind of a daily thing, but they don't have these ebbs and flows um, in terms of progesterone and estrogen. And they, 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 it doesn't happen for them. And so if we just try to be little men, you know, you end up failing, you end up blaming yourself. And then, then goes the blame and shame spiral. And then we think that we're not worthy or we're not capable yeah. of having a metabolism or living in a body that feels good. And I think it just becomes this thing where like women think that like, if they've quote unquote failed, that it's like their like lack of willpower, whereas right. like you're not working with your body or your physiology and your hormones. And so, you know, like I I really do think that like just understanding hormones and like really honoring your cycle is incredibly important. So, I mean, doing God's work really. Or goddesses work. (laughs) Goddesses work. Exactly. There we go. So I also want to talk to you about fasting because this is a complicated area to navigate. Okay, Stephanie, like fasting is good for you, but then also it's detrimental to hormones and it's just complicated. So What is your take here? Like, first and foremost, I think what we should probably discuss is what are the benefits of fasting when done correctly? Good. I'm glad we're talking about this. So fasting is a great tool. It can be used to heal... Uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of women that I see kind of have a lot of undiagnosed SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We can have a lot of digestive upset, a lot of gut dysbiosis and hyperpermeability of the gut. Uh, of course, it can be used as a fat loss tool. Uh, it can also be used to disrupt the circadian uh, hunger rhythms that we all have. Like there's a reason why we typically get hungry at the same time every uh, single day. And that's under the influence of like, ghrelin and leptin, which is a kind of a other metabolic hormones. So fasting can be used as, as a, as a tool in your metabolic tool belt. But again, what typically happens is that we see guys doing it. We see guys fasting for 
five days, seven days, you know? Um, and we're like, Hey, maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe you don't do five days or seven days. Maybe you say, well, every day I'm going to eat, I'm going to do a 16, eight every day. I'm going to fast for 16 hours. I'm going to eat for eight. And what ends up happening, of course, is like, we are different every single day of the month, every week of the month, there's a different hormonal profile. And again, it can be, we come back to this idea of white knuckling it, right? Where we're trying, we're like, no, I said I was going to do 16, eight, but I'm starving. It's like 10 o'clock. I'm only supposed to eat at 12. You know, I think having a bit more flexibility in our thinking as women around listening to our body signals, like there's going to be weeks, like I'll tell you the week before my period, if I do a 12, 12, if I do a 12, 12, that's a success for me, but I'm hungry. I'm hungrier that week. So I will eat for 12 hours of the day. And then, you know, and sometimes it's longer than that. Sometimes I eat for, you know, 14 hours and then I'm fasting for 12 or 10 hours or whatever it is, but I don't have any guilt around that anymore. Although I used to. So I, I say this with love because I think we've, especially when we talk about diet uh, and diet culture, it can be very restrictive and it can feel very punitive. It feels like in order to look the way that we want or in order to feel the way that we want, we have to punish ourselves. It has to be hard. And I, and I reject that. I don't think that it has to be hard. I think a 12-12 is nice. I think a 12-14, again, really well supported in the literature for still improving insulin sensitivity, for helping with gut, uh, like hyperpermeability of the gut, helping with growth hormone, all of these different things you can still achieve with an easier fast. And I think for women, we have to at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, understand that we are just exquisitely sensitive to changes in our diets. When we restrict food too aggressively, and I would actually, you know, there are certain hormonal um, presentations like polycystic ovary syndrome, where I think we can be a little bit more aggressive. There can be times where we can do 16-8. With estrogen dominance, uh, again, there can be times where we can do 16-8. But I think that that 10-14 or that 12-12 is a beautiful compromise. And you're not going to be amplifying hunger signals because that's what I hear. Like Women are like, I like to do 16-8. That's what I've heard in the literature. That's what I've heard so-and-so talk about. And that's what I'm going to do. But you can't do that well, I shouldn't say can't. You can you can do whatever you want, but I would invite you to consider that maybe doing that all through the month is not taking into account how your hormones may be influencing your hunger and your metabolism. So then what is an ideal time to, I guess, do a longer fast if that kind of calls out to you? Like, is there an ideal time or should women just shy away from the 16, 18 hour fasts altogether? No, I think that there's time. I think that there's appropriate times for it. So I think, you know, as I mentioned, women with PCOS, which is a, which is a endocrine disorder that's characterized by like androgen dominance, hyperinsulinemia, uh, a whole host of other things, but they do really, really well with longer fasts and more often, uh, mm-hmm. same with estrogen dominance initially. I think that if you are someone who wants to try a longer fast, when we look at the hormonal uh, constitution of a woman's menstrual cycle, her bleed week is actually, especially the first half of her bleed week, great time for a longer fast because your estrogen levels are low. We have none of those anabolic growth hormones 
that are kind of driving growth that need a lot of energy. Similarly, in week three of your cycle, so I mentioned, you know, we have this big peak of estrogen in week two, and then she drops off. And then sort of midway through week three, she comes back up again. First half of week three, great time for a longer fast. And you can play with 24-hour fast. If you're, you know, if you've been doing 24-hour fast during those times, you might experiment with a uh, maybe a 36-hour fast, maybe a 48-hour fast. Like those are still things that you can integrate here and there, but I don't think that those should be goals that you should be doing every single day of the month. So again, there's flexibility in terms of when and you know how long you want to fast, uh, how what type of fast. There's also you know we didn't talk about like different types of fast. There's like the yeah. pure water fast that most people think of, but you can also do what I call a caloric liquid fast, where you are mm-hmm. having things like bone broth or soups uh, through the day. So you're you're still consuming some calories, but you're allowing for repair, let's say, in the gut. Um, so there's lots of lots of different ways that we can approach fasting, but the biggest point that I want people to take home is not to do it the same way all through the month. And when you need to give yourself a break, girl, like just do it. Just give yourself the break that you need. You're working, your body is working so hard to support you. And when we are sort of at odds with our body, um, because we're trying so hard to look a certain way, uh, I think this is when we can run into, you actually create more hormonal derangement doing that than you were expecting to. Yeah, totally. I mean, we've discussed two kinds of fast, which is um, kind of like no calories and then like a liquid one, which incorporates bone broth and stuff. So what is the benefit of like doing a bone broth type fast? Yeah. So bone broth has a lot of great things in it. Namely, it has uh, amino acids. So if you are having, you know, let's say you have either bought your bone broth or you've made it yourself, uh, you are consuming hopefully the marrow from the bones that were soaking or that were, you know, on, on a slow cooker. Um, You are getting amino acids like glycine, uh, which are going to help lubricate uh, our joints and our tendons. So, you know, as we age, we want to be thinking about how we can support support our joints, tendons, and ligaments. Glycine will help with sort of glide with those joints. When we are consuming bone broth, for example, we are um, consuming something called the glycosaminoglycan, which is uh, GAG for short because it's a really long word. Uh, And it helps with uh, repair of the internal lining of the cell, so the of the intestine, so the lumen or the or the uh, or the inside part, and we have a really high turnover uh, in our intestinal lining. Like they turn over like every three days or so. Um, so we want to, as they're turning over, we want to be able to give these epithelial cells the energy that they need so that when they're birthing new cells, that they're robust and healthy and that we can start to also begin to heal if there's any gut dysbiosis or hyperpermeability, we can also begin to heal that as well. How do you feel about fasting with a bulletproof coffee? Because like fat coffees are like really, really popular as well. Yeah, I like it. I think it's, um, you know, for women especially, I love, you know, a fatty coffee or fatty tea because that fat is going to help you. It's going to satiate you, right? Um, It's also going to be uh, sending a signal of satiety, which is really important for a female physiology. You know, our mitochondria and our ovaries are one of the sort of cool little pieces of um, info that I'll, I'll share with you is that our, the mitochondria, the concentration of mitochondria in our ovaries is far more than any other organ in the body. So we have about 100,000 mitochondria per cell in the ovary. 
You compare that to the liver. We think the liver is very important. There's about 2,000 mitochondria per hepatocyte. When we look at the heart, there's about 5,000 uh, mitochondria per myocyte. And then in the ovaries, we have 100,000. So you're, you just have to think of your ovaries as like little eyes. Right? They're always like, what's going on in the environment, right? <laughs> so if you give them food, it's like, okay, we're safe, right? We're okay. It's okay to continue uh, with this cycle of reproduction, because if your if your ovaries sense that there's famine because you are overly calorically restricting, you're fasting too aggressively. There's too much cardio. You know you're too like you know you you've been doing keto for too long. Your ovaries are going to be like you know what she's really stressed. Like this is probably not the best time for her to get pregnant. Let's just shut down this cycle this month until she's kind of back on track. And then we get these anovulatory cycles, which becomes mm-hmm. a huge problem for us over the long term. So the last thing that I want to touch on is actually just workouts as well, according to your cycle. Mm-hmm. Because I know that, again, like along with this rest of this myth, it's like, oh, like cardio all the time, which obviously is not necessarily true. So is there an ideal time to kind of lift weights versus do hit versus do like long sessions of cardio versus Pilates? Like, like, are you able to time it alongside your cycle to kind of optimize things? Absolutely. So I'm a big fan of resistance training all through the cycle. Um, it's just how you do it. I think that should change. Um, again, I was mentioning, you know, when you first get your period, you're just like, you know, you feel a little lethargic, a little slow. And maybe you take a couple of days off when you first get your period. But I think moderate weights, once you kind of get into, you know, the rhythm and the cadence of your period uh, is really great. I think when your testosterone peaks in that week too, it's a great time to lift heavy. I love to lift somewhere between five and seven reps, like super, super heavy, um, because we want to support more testosterone. This is especially important for my women who are, you know, 30 and above, we want to be thinking about putting on as much muscle mass as we can as we age to prevent, you know, first of all, from muscle loss due to aging. But we also want to support testosterone and estrogen as we age as well. So lifting weights does that. So heavy weights in week two. Back to kind of moderate weights in week three is typically how I structure things. So like an eight to 12 rep kind of uh, constitution, Um, but you should be like kind of finished at 12. So Mm -hmm. um, it can be the exact same program all through the cycle. You're just changing the weight. And then in week four, because we tend to be a little more inflamed, a little bit more maybe aggravated, lighter weights, but higher reps. So I love like a 15 to 20 uh, rep range uh, for a set for weights. Um, Or you can just take it off. Like you can also just take, as you're doing a bit of a diet break, you can also have a week of recovery if you so choose to. I just feel like when I'm when I'm training, I'm training almost to failure all the weeks. It's just the way that I do it. You know, the, it's the set and the weight, uh, it's the, pardon me, the repetition number uh, that changes. And of course, the weights that change alongside with it. So I think that you can be doing that. I think yoga is appropriate anytime. I do think that you want to be careful in week two, in particular with HIIT training. So high intensity interval training, all the rage. It's the super popular thing that, you know, we hear everyone saying it's like efficient and it, you know, helps with muscle fiber types one, type one and type two, uh, which is all true. That's all really great. Cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary stuff. Um, But in week two, in particular, that big rise of estrogen does impact our ligaments and our tendons. So ligaments and tendons will be, well, I should say our, um, 
our ligaments become more loosey-goosey and our tendons become stiffer. So the stiffer tendons are actually really great for heavier lifts, but the loosey-goosey ligaments are not great for hit. So burst, any type of burst activity, you are much more likely to injure yourself in this week. And we actually see this uh, supported in the literature where we often will see athletes, female athletes tend to have these ligamentous injuries in week two of their cycle. So I say back off of the HIIT training in, um, in week two, if you can replace it with steady state. If you're cardio bunny and you love your, you know, your endorphin high from cardio, you can still do it just a different type. And then I would say as a general rule for cardio, I know that I'm flying in the face of a lot of preconceived um, beliefs around cardio, but I don't think that we should be doing cardio as often as we probably are. I often work with women who come to me and they're like, I have this belly fat, I can't get rid of it. Uh, even though I'm working at five days a week, like I'm doing like Peloton or whatever it is at, you know, online class, whatever it is, five days a week. I don't think that we should be doing cardio five days a week because again, those mitochondria, those eyes, right, in our body... Uh, that can't see but can sense are like, why are we always running away from this tiger? Like, why? what is the danger that we have to do this crazy activity five days out of the week? Um, so you actually increase cortisol by doing that. And of course, cortisol has a many number of effects on the body, but I would say that in terms of your body composition, it will actually predispose you to putting on more belly fat, uh, which is what we don't want uh, in our women. So we've discussed a lot of concepts in this interview, which I'm sure people will just love. But if you could give women three simple tips that they could just do this week, what would it be? Track your cycle. Know where you are in your cycle. So free app. Free, you know, if you have a phone, it's like, you know, you can down. I use Clue, which is uh, no affiliation. It's just the one that I use. There are many other ones. Start tracking your cycle and observing your energy, your mood. Uh, your libido, all of those things over the course of the next several months. That would be my one thing, like number one thing. The second thing would be just if you can, if you feel so inclined to just be a little gentler with yourself. You know, I think you would never yell at a baby for not being able to walk, right? Because they're not there yet, right? You, you know, you, you want to be uh, gentle with yourself and have take a long-term view. Like you don't have to do it all right now. Like master one thing, do it really well so you feel good and you feel confident and then add something else. So just love yourself a little bit more. Take time for rest. I mean, if there was, if I could choose rest and recovery, if I had the choice between rest and cardio, I'd choose rest, right? If you have a solid foundation of nutrition, you're doing the fitness that we've been talking about and you give yourself adequate rest, especially for my type A personalities who never want to rest, this is a very productive thing. Rest is very productive. And it's also really, uh, it fills your soul, right? It helps us you know, gives us hope if we're always working ourselves to the bone where we're just like exhausted. You know, it's not a way to live. I would love for more women to take more pleasure in their bodies and have more reverence for it. So those would, kind of, those would be my three things that I would like easy tips, easy things that everybody can start doing. Like how can we have more love and appreciation for ourselves? How can we rest? And should I know where I am in my cycle? Probably. Love it. Um, Stephanie, tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, well, you can pick up my book. It's called The Betty Body, uh, available. And it's incredible. Oh, incredible. Thank you. Yeah. So you can pick it up on, you know, 
Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, Chapters Indigo if you're in Canada. Uh, that would be kind of the first step. You can also find me on Instagram uh, at Dr. Stephanie Estima uh, is where I am there. And then I have a podcast just like you. I'm a podcaster. Uh, the podcast is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. I would say those are the best places to start. Yeah, those are, you know, we have some free options there, right? The podcast and Instagram. And then if you feel like you want to do a deeper dive and get some of the practical tools uh, that we've been talking about today, like the exact how-tos and all that's outlined in the book, The Betty Body. And I will say like, again, like I think that this book is something that every woman should own. Like every single one of us should have this book. Like I, like I am such a fan. The book is absolutely phenomenal. Like I've heard it on Audible. It's incredible. So everyone go pick up a copy, honestly. That's the one piece of advice I'll give you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This was a joy. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved the episode and feel like it brought you value, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. It takes five seconds and really helps the show grow so I can keep bringing on awesome guests. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram at Sif And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I drop new episodes every Tuesday, so come hang with me and shoot the shit with some really smart people, learn and unlearn, and have a lot of fun. See you next week.